beautiful and palatial Ultimate Sports Talk.com radio studios. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Ultimate Sports Talk Show here on Ultimate Sports Talk.com. I'm Dave Mitchell. Such a pleasure to have you along here this evening as we're going to sit back and kick around some of the most important things that are happening in the world of sports today. And, of course, you can reach out and talk to us on the social media simply by sending me an email at dmitch at ultimatesportstalk.com or send me a tweet at ohbbcohost. There is a lot going on, and tonight, realistically, is the first night of the NFL season for this August 13th. Yeah, sure, last Sunday night the Minnesota Vikings defeated the Pittsburgh Steelers 14-3, to and I never get tired of saying the Steelers get beat. But, so much as it may, there are six games going on around the NFL tonight as the preseason schedule realistically gets underway this evening. So that's happening. Of course, the Tom Brady situation, is it ever going to go away? Probably not if Roger Goodell has anything to say about it. This is the longest-running soap opera in NFL history. The NBA schedule has come out. What in the world is Tristan Thompson thinking? And we've got a lot of key matchups going on around Major League Baseball this weekend. But, of course, as we always say, but first, what a crazy story coming out of Las Vegas this afternoon in the UFC. After hours of testifying, UFC middleweight legend Anderson Silva has been suspended for one year by the Nevada Athletic Commission. Silva tested positive for illegal steroids during a pre-fight test for UFC fight number 183. In a bizarre hearing today, the former UFC middleweight champ pleaded the fifth through a translator when asked about a blue vial that contained a sexual performance supplement. The supplement is what Silva's defense claimed to have caused one of the positive tests. Silva later said that through the translator that he had misinterpreted him and that the supplement was provided to him from a friend from Thailand. Silva said he could not get the supplement in America and didn't clarify what it was. Silva's defense was picked apart by the NAC, with one commissioner calling their defense hokey. The defense would not provide documents on drug tests they had run, and Silva's attorney tried pleading with the commission that Silva did not know the supplements he took contained illegal supplements. The commission also voted for Silva's fight at 183 against Nick Diaz to be changed from a unanimous decision win to a no contest due to drug test failure. Now that vote was unanimous and the result was officially a no contest, which means Silva now forfeits his $200,000 win bonus and 30% of his $600,000 fight purse, totaling $380,000 in fines. Nick Diaz also failed one of his drug tests for UFC 183, testing positive for marijuana metabolites over the allowable limit, and he will face an NSAC for a ruling at a later date. In other news around the UFC, the lightweight title will be up for grabs at Fox UFC Fight Night in Orlando as Rafael Dos Anjos puts his championship on the line for the first time as he faces Donald Cowboy Cerrone on December 19th. UFC officials confirmed the main event of Fox Sports today. This will be a rematch between the two lightweights after the first meeting in 2013, with Dos Anjos coming out on top by a unanimous decision. Most recently, Dos Anjos has reeled off four wins in a row, including his lightweight title victory over Anthony Pettis this past March. 
Since losing to Dos Anjos in 2013, Cerrone has gone on an incredible run in the UFC's lightweight division, winning his past eight fights to earn his first title shot since joining the promotion. Cerrone was declared the number one contender in May following a TKO win over John McDessie, and now he'll finally get his chance to avenge the previous loss to Dos Anjos while fighting for the UFC light, lightweight title. Fox USC Fight Night goes down from the Amway Center in Orlando on December 19th and will mark the final event of the year for the promotion. And most fights will be announced for the upcoming card in the next few weeks. You're listening to another Thursday night edition of the Ultimate Sports Talk Show here on UltimateSportsTalk.com. I'm Dave Mitchell. So happy you decided to join us here this evening as we continue on. Also this afternoon, American downhill skier Lindsay Vaughn has suffered a training setback in Queenstown, New Zealand, fracturing her ankle in a training crash. This is the latest in a series of injuries that have plagued her career, including the knee injury that kept her out of the last Winter Olympics. The New York Post is reporting that this incident could derail her attempts to get back into World Cup contention in preparation for the Olympic Games in South Korea. The Post has mentioned that Vaughn believes this is just a hiccup on our way back to the top of the women's downhill skiing sport. Sports Illustrated recalls that Lindsey Vaughn missed the Sochi Olympics when she tore two ligaments in her right knee in a training crash. She has since injured that knee a second time, but reports of the current injury do not mention which ankle is broken, but it also doesn't seem to concern either the knee or the ligaments. Well, the preseason schedule, as I said, begins in earnest tonight. And around this area of concern, you want to call it concern, the Cleveland Browns and the Washington Redskins will open their preseason schedules tonight at First Energy Stadium in Cleveland, Ohio. The game is scheduled to kick off at 8 o'clock right after our show here this evening. And for Browns fans, it will be the first look at their new first-round pick, Danny Shelton, lining up against another team. And quite honestly, I'm anxious to see just what Danny Shelton can do. He is the big nose tackle that they got out of Washington. He is supposedly going to be just the same as Vince Wolfolk is for the Houston Texans. Now, of course, everybody's putting their headlights upon Johnny Manziel, who sat out practice Tuesday with a dead arm, and quite honestly, I didn't even know he had a live arm, and he's expected to play tonight. I really could care less. The guy I want to see play tonight for the Browns, there are two of them. One will play, the other won't. Terrell Pryor is whom I really wanted to see here this evening, switching to a tight end slash wide receiver, but he will not play in this game tonight because he's got a hamstring injury. So we'll have to wait until next week before Terrell Pryor makes his debut as a Cleveland Brown. The second player I want to see is the player that I've been touting for the last year as the quarterback of the Cleveland Browns, Connor Shaw out of South Carolina. Now for all of the reports that I have heard and seen throughout the past few days, Connor Shaw's arm strength has improved and his accuracy has improved. We already know he has got a great presence, not only in the huddle, but in the locker room with the players. They like him. They respect him. They want to play for him. Unlike Johnny Manziel, 
Now, Josh McCowan will be the Browns' starting quarterback. But as far as I'm concerned, Connor Shaw is the quarterback and waiting for the Cleveland Browns. Unfortunately, the Browns don't know it. Ray Farmer probably will never know it. And he will never allow Connor Shaw to be the quarterback of the Cleveland Browns. He'll trade him before that happens. But then again, Ray Farmer's the same guy that texted down to the sidelines last year. What does that tell you about his expertise? It's also going to be the first time that Colt McCoy will be back at First Energy Stadium since he played quarterback for the Browns over three years ago. Now, the Redskins expect to play their starters for about one quarter in the game. The Browns probably about the same under Mike Pettin. Redskins coach Jay Gruden says those plans could change depending upon how the offense fares. Now, in other games tonight in the NFL... The Packers are playing at the Patriots. That game is actually going to kick off around 7.30 Eastern time. The Saints will be at the Ravens. The Jets are at Detroit. The Dolphins are in Chicago to take on the Bears. And later on tonight, the Cowboys will be playing at San Diego. Well, we talked last week about the possibility of Ray Rice returning to the NFL. Was it a possibility or was it not? Well, the next couple of weeks will determine if the league is conspiring against Rice or if they really are going to allow him to play. Because rumors have started to surface that the Cleveland Browns have reportedly discussed the possibility of signing Rice and reuniting him with Browns running back coach Wilbert Montgomery, Rice's position coach during his six years in Baltimore. Now, during Rice's time working with Montgomery, he has made three Pro Bowls and rushed for over 9,200 total yards from scrimmage. That was in the years 2008 through 2013, and that's the fourth most in the NFL during that span. Another thing that is adding some evidence to the intrigue, well, Montgomery has been extremely critical of the three current Cleveland running backs, saying that Terrence West, Isaiah Crowell, and rookie Duke Johnson out of Miami didn't arrive in training camp in good shape. Also, the Dallas Cowboys have a hole at the running back position, created by DeMarco Murray leaving, but also by minor injuries that have shelved Joseph Randall, Darren McFadden, and Lance Dunbar. And will Darren McFadden ever be healthy? If he is, please stand up. Plus, the Cowboys have another domestic violence offender on their roster in Greg Hardy, so they would probably fit well together, and the, the Cowboys could end up saving legal bills just by pairing the two together. No matter where, Rice, I think, deserves another chance. I still think the league is colluding against him, and the next couple of weeks are going to tell us whether that is the case or not. Speaking of somebody who, why in the world did the Jets do this? You know, the New York Jets, next to the Cleveland Browns, you put those two teams together, and they open up against each other. You put those two teams together, you have got a great idea for a graphic novel, a comic book, because both of these teams are totally comedy-ridden when it comes to running their organization. And this week, it just continued on for the Jets, because Geno Smith was supposedly sucker-punched. Now, in this instance, I guess a sucker-punch means that Geno Smith was the sucker, and he elected to have surgery to fix his broken jaw after getting a second medical opinion. See, his jaw was broken on Tuesday when former Jets linebacker I.K. 
and M. Kampali punched the quarterback in the locker room in a dispute over a $600 debt. Evidently, M. Kampali had bought an airline ticket for Geno Smith to arrive at a football camp that the linebacker was holding in his hometown. Well, Smith evidently couldn't make it, and this dispute had been going on for a couple of weeks because Enem Kampali wanted to be repaid the $600. Well, when it didn't happen, it brewed over onto the field, then into the locker room, and that's when Enem Kampali ended up punching Geno Smith. Now, if Geno Smith was an actual leader of men, no matter what this was over, if he had a teammate that was upset over a $600 bill, I don't care whether or not Geno Smith felt he didn't have to pay him back. The guy makes enough money, flip $600 to the linebacker, the second-year linebacker, and call it a day. You're the leader of men. You're the leader of this football team. That's what they want out of you. But instead, Geno Smith decided to argue about it. Well, after the incident, the Jets released and Kampali, who was subsequently claimed by... Guess who? Rex Ryan's Buffalo Bills yesterday. Sports Illustrated's Peter King weighs in on how Geno Smith's injury will affect the Jets' quarterback situation. When this happened, uh, our crew, the crew of the MMQB, we were in Cleveland. And I'm just telling you, the Browns, they faced the Jets in the opener. And the Browns are not at all convinced that this is a bad thing for the Jets as far as you know, early on, at the very least, Ryan Fitzpatrick, Chan Gailey, it's obviously a really bad comedy. But Ryan Fitzpatrick and Chan Gailey, with the past they have, at least early in the season, is going to give the Jets a better chance. I think a lot of people around the league feel that way. Doesn't something always happen with the Jets? I mean, it's not only the Jets. You know, weird things happen on other teams. But, uh, I, you know, since it just seems that there have been so many things that have happened to this franchise, you know, it's almost like, you know, the New York Mets in 69 with the black cat walking across the field against the Cubs. I mean, it's just there is something about this team that bad things just happen. And uh, I, I can't explain what it is. I don't know what it is, but I do know this. We were at Buffalo's camp yesterday, and Rex Ryan, I was talking to him, and he said, hey, they'll, they'll find a way to blame me for this one, too. Smith is expected to be sidelined for about six to ten weeks. Enem Kampali could face disciplinary action from the league office, of course, Roger Goodell getting his two cents worth in, under the personal conduct policy. Bills coach Rex Ryan knows exactly what the move looks like when he claimed the linebacker a hell-bent attempt to stick it to his old team seven months after he himself was cast off. And to be honest with you, he actually welcomes the criticism. Well, it was court day in the NFL, in federal court, on Wednesday. And it sure seemed like a good day for Tom Brady. On one hand, Judge Richard Berman really made Roger Goodell and his team of NFL lawyers squirm, challenging the findings of the Wells Report, and wondering where the direct evidence was in finding Brady guilty of the rules infraction that has been alleged. Berman asked the type of questions that Patriot fans, and actually all fans, including myself, have been dying to ask these bozos if you were the judge and juror. 
and penalized Patriots quarterback for his role in the Deflategate scandal. The biggest question being from Judge Berman, what is the evidence of a scheme or a conspiracy? Well, NFL attorney Daniel Nash couldn't provide a sufficient answer to that query, saying there was no direct evidence leaking Brady. That led Berman to conclude, well, there is no finding in this case that there was anything done by Mr. Brady in the AFC Championship game. So now where does the league and Roger Goodell go? Well, hopefully back to New York to whatever hole that they crawled out from under, and they'll go back to it. They have said several times that the only way they will settle this is if Brady agrees to the validity of the Wells report, which Brady will never do. But is Brady really in the clear, and will the four-game suspension be completely wiped out by the courts? As it is, Berman grilled both sides and hit on some issues on the Brady argument, even while his gavel seemed to be coming down much harder on the NFL. Adam Schefter spoke this morning on ESPN's Mike and Mike show about this entire debacle. That was, I thought, fascinating for one day. George Berman took the NFL and the six people there into a private room for about 20 minutes. He did the same thing for the NFLPA officials for about 30 minutes, and then he came out and opened it up, and he called up Dan Nash. And at the outset of his questioning, Judge Berman was very clear in stating, please do not read anything, any meaning, into my questions and the direction I'm going. My job is to play devil's advocate. And so as somebody who doesn't cover courts and judges on a regular basis, I want to say that at the outset because, again, you read into it what you want from there. I think he was trying to get at the facts. Saying that, he went on to hammer the NFL. And he went on to specifically hammer the Wells report. The Wells report was on trial yesterday. And the judge doesn't buy the Wells report. He made that very clear by saying in his exact words, and I'm using his words, I'm quote-unquote having trouble finding the quote-unquote direct evidence that implicates Tom Brady in this particular case. Now, the NFL argued that the CBA trumps all, and that Roger Goodell's authority, which the NFLPA agreed to, covers everything, and that the commissioner was acting within the integrity of the game to protect the integrity of the game. Now, that was the NFL's argument, and the judge wanted many of the facts laid out, and it just didn't seem like he got answers that satisfied him. The NFL kept leaning back on there's a preponderance of evidence, there's a chain of texts, there's this text that one guy identifies himself as the deflator. But the judge came back to the fact that you're saying to me, what does generally aware mean? And Tom Brady's generally aware of the act of two other guys who may or may not have done something that we do not know on January 18th. So to me, the judge raised major questions about the Wells report. That was my take. Now, he may view it that the CBA trumps all and Commissioner Goodell's powers trump all. And I don't know how Judge Berman's going to rule. But I'll say this, that from my time listening to the public questioning of Dan Nash, the NFL attorney, and Jeffrey Kessler, the NFL PA attorney, I, I thought he came down very hard on the NFL. Now, he got Jeffrey Kessler up there, and he said, what about the destroyed cell phone? And I thought the judge did a great job at asking all the questions that everybody's asked on Sports Talk Radio and on the city streets for the past few weeks and months. Any question that any fan has had, the judge asked. And he said, what happened to the cell phone? And Jeffrey Kessler said, 
We could have and should have handled that differently. But this is the most overblown issue in my 40 years of litigating cases, which was a statement in and of itself, but also probably a shot at Ted Wells, who, when the report came out, said that Tom Brady refusing to cooperate and giving over the cell phone was one of the poorest decisions that he's seen in his 40 years of covering and being involved in the law. So, obviously, there was some interplay there, but Jeffrey Kessler wanted to explain why Tom Brady did that. And again, then the session ended after a few hours, and he spent a few more hours in oral arguments and settlement talks with the two sides. Now, again, my interpretation was going in there, I think, and this is the problem and the issue with this whole situation, Tom Brady refuses to admit any guilt in this case. He doesn't believe he did anything wrong. He said that under oath. The NFL, before that uh, hearing yesterday morning, has refused to budge one bit. And even Chris Mortensen reported yesterday morning that the only way the NFL would be willing to settle would be if Tom Brady accepted the findings in the Wells report, which in our lifetimes, Tom Brady's never going to do. So we have two sides entrenched in their own views, and in my mind, the judge, at the very least, seemed to be trying to soften up the NFL to try to get this case settled, because make no mistake about it, the judge wants this case settled. He does not want to have to make this decision. He wants them to get it done, and he's trying to put them in a position to do that now. So along those lines, as the judge couched it by saying, I'm just playing devil's advocate, do you feel after that day, if you had to put it on a scoreboard, that Tom Brady won the day? It'd be hard to argue any other way, okay? Now, I, I think of this going in, and Sal Palantonio pointed this out yesterday. This judge, in six previous years, from I think 2005 to 2011, had 68 cases that arbitrators had turned over to him, and he upheld those rulings in 66 of the 68 cases, which certainly works against Tom Brady. But then you look at the NFL's track record in previous cases, Adrian Peterson, Greg Hardy, Ray Rice, Bountygate, the NFL is 0 for its last four. So somebody's got to win here, somebody's got to lose, we break down these legal numbers just like we break down game numbers going into a game match. But, again, for the judge to question the validity of the Wells report yesterday the way he did, I don't see how you wouldn't view that as a victory for Tom Brady. And he started it out with a question that a lot of people have asked, which is asking Dan Nash about why does the NFL consider this to have been an independent investigation? He had major questions about that. How can you tell me that Ted Wells was an independent investigator when his firm was being paid, when Lauren Reisner, who works with Ted Wells, conducted the cross-examination of Tom Brady during the June 23rd appeal hearing on behalf of the NFL, and he asked for Dan Nash to explain why it was an independent investigation, and Dan Nash replied that Ted Wells and Lauren Reisner and that firm of Paul Weiss was hired to get at the facts and get at the facts only. And again, it always comes back to the CBA and the powers granted to the commissioner under the CBA that the NFLPA signed off on. So is this ever going to end, Shefty? Well, think about this. We have briefs due from both sides on Friday, and both sides are scheduled to be back at that courthouse on Wednesday, August 19th, which, by the way, will be exactly eight months since this whole saga began. I would like to think that eight months is enough to get this whole thing wrapped up. Eight months. Hasn't that gone on long enough? I mean, really. 
Now, again, I think the judge is trying to coax both sides into settling this case. I don't see how they're going to settle it because I don't see either side willing to budge right now. So that becomes the judge's challenge, but he's made a living doing that, and he's made a very distinguished living doing that. So it's up to him to try to do that. If we get to Wednesday and there's no settlement, I would think that would be a setback. But I also was told all along that Wednesday, August 19th, would be the key day. That would be the key day when the judges, when the two sides would be there in front of the judge. And, again, people felt like that would be the day that could wind up telling the story here. Look, by September 4th, he's going to make a ruling. By September 4th. I think it will come before then. So we're on the clock here, and I think everybody can say, the NFL, the NFLPA, Tom Brady, everybody, We've we've seen this going on long enough. If Tom Brady and the Patriots are saying we have done absolutely nothing wrong, why are McNally and Jastrzemski not employed by the Patriots anymore? That's a great question. I I come back to what I said. I I know it's been denied, but the NFL asked the Patriots to suspend them, and the Patriots went along with that request. And, again, it'll be interesting to see how the Patriots handle that because, in my mind right now, I'd have no problem. I, I don't know if you want to do anything to interfere with the case and the judge's decision and the settlement talks that are ongoing. You want those co- events to proceed on their own course. But, you know, to me, after after that, I, I, I think you'll see both men reinstated uh, afterwards. That wouldn't be a surprise to me at all. Well, I know that cut was long, but it was extremely interesting to hear Schefter talk about what happened yesterday in court. And, of course, we'll keep everybody apprised as August 19th will be the next day that those two will be in court, unless they come to a settlement before that, but don't count on it. The Indianapolis Colts and wide receiver T.Y. Hilton agreed to a contract extension this morning, according to multiple reports. Hilton was set to enter the final season of his rookie contract, but now he will be paid at a much higher level actually more commensurate with his talent. He signed for $65 million, and that's fourth among wideouts behind only Calvin Johnson, Des Bryant, and Demarius Thomas. It's got a $39 million guarantee that also ranks fourth behind the same three players, as does the $13 million average annual salary. Hey, last night, HBO's Hard Knocks started, and this year the focus team is the Houston Texans. You know, I enjoy this show, and I had a chance to watch it again just two nights ago. And it started out with Coach Bill O'Brien saying the Texans are disrespected and nobody expects them to win. That was what he was telling his assistant coaches the night before training camp began. The quarterback competition for the Texans is going to be hot and heavy as former Browns quarterback Brian Hoyer and Ryan Mallett are going to battle it out. And they are both former quarterbacks under Bill Belichick and Bill O'Brien, with the New England Patriots. J.J. Watt, though, was the most intriguing character. That was the reason that they went with the Texans this year. That included in the fact that they wanted the Browns, and the Browns begged off of it because Johnny Manziel was just coming out of rehab. But J.J. Watt was so impressive in the first show because after practice, he would stay after catching balls out of the machine, the jugs machine, Then he would practice his moves, trying to get around blockers. And then what was even more impressive out of him was him signing autographs. At one point you saw him walk across the field. It was about nine 
38, about 20 minutes until 10, and he said, let's see if I can get out of here before 10 o'clock. Well, he couldn't. He stood there and he signed everyone's autograph, shirts, whatever. Whatever they wanted, pictures, he stayed until the very last person had actually been respected and helped. Just a class act, J.J. Watt is, as far as the Houston Texans are concerned. And I'm looking forward to the next five episodes of HBO's Hard Knocks. Well, college football is beginning also, and before you know it, it will be September, Labor Day weekend, and the college football season will begin with Ohio State playing in Blacksburg against Virginia Tech. And before the defending national champion Ohio State Buckeyes, and I love saying that, the defending national champion Ohio State Buckeyes, first team offense, took the field for practice on Monday afternoon. Coach Urban Meyer already knew how he would decide who would line up at quarterback because that is the biggest question that the Buckeyes have, according to the media, so far in this training camp. Who will be the quarterback? J.T. Barrett or Cardell Jones? That's the question. Well, the three-time national champion head coach determined a coin flip was going to take care of that problem. It would decide whether Barrett or Jones took the first official snaps of fall camp. Jones got to call it since he is actually older than Barrett as far as education is concerned. And Jones called heads, and it was heads, so he lined up first. The players are going to rotate, and Myers said he'd rely on a gut feeling when it comes to making his final decision. And how he defines that gut feeling remains unclear, but it would seem to differ from the statistics-based approach that he originally said he would take. Last year... He went with the statistics-based approach, and it was J.T. Barrett. Proved to be a good call until Barrett got hurt, and then Jones came in. That proved to be even a better call. So it's too early to get a feel for how this quarterback competition will play out, but as the Buckeyes' first practice of fall camp approaches, both Barrett and Jones appear to be on equal footing with the staff. Now, how long that remains to be the case is left to be seen, but with Ohio State offering only limited media availability through the remainder of the month, don't expect to know who the starting quarterback for the 2015 season will be anytime soon. As a matter of fact, Urban Meyer has said he probably will not make an announcement who the starting quarterback will be until you see the quarterback take the field the first time the Buckeyes offense has the ball in that Virginia Tech game in Blacksburg. Well, also in the Big Ten, Michigan State linebacker Ed Davis is out for the season after injuring his knee in practice on Wednesday. The school says Davis will need surgery. He's a fifth-year senior. He had 11 sacks and 40 career games for the Spartans, and he was an honorable mention all-Big Ten selection last year. Spartans coach Mark D'Antonio says Davis's presence in the lineup will be missed, but he still will have an important role on the team and may be able to qualify for a sixth year of eligibility. A district judge has denied Florida State's motion to dismiss the lawsuit filed by former student Erica Kinsman in a ruling on Wednesday. Kinsman has said former Florida State quarterback Jameis Winston sexually assaulted her in 2012. Her lawsuit against the university's board of trustees states the school failed to properly investigate or respond 
to her allegation, which denied her educational benefits. She's seeking monetary damages. The next step in the suit against FSU is for depositions to be scheduled following Judge Mark Walker's ruling on Wednesday. Kinsman has also filed a suit against Winston, the number one pick in the NFL draft, and he's now playing for Tampa Bay. Winston was never charged by Tallahassee police and was not disciplined following a university code of conduct hearing. And a shameless promotional effort here on UltimateSportsTalk.com. Coming up on August 28th, it will be our second year of bringing you high school football. And it will be Tusky Valley traveling to Apple Creek, Ohio to take on the Waynedale Golden Bears. The Bears are the number seven team in Division Five football, high school football, according to the renowned website J.J. Huddle this year. And the Bears have a tremendous amount of seniors coming back. Our coverage will begin at 6 o'clock on that Friday night, August 28th, with Golden Bear Rewind, when we will bring you the last 30 minutes of the last game of a year ago. And then that will continue throughout the season as we'll bring you the last 30 minutes of the previous week's games prior to the current game. At 6.30 will be our pregame show, and at 7 o'clock is the kickoff. Tusky Valley at Wayndale. All that coming up on August 28th here on UltimateSportsTalk.com. What, oh what, is Cavalier forward Tristan Thompson thinking? This week, Thompson sent word via his agent, Rich Paul, who is also the agent for LeBron James, that he is considering taking the qualifying offer from the Cavaliers, a one-year deal that would make him an unrestricted free agent next summer. Now, that one-year deal would be for $6.8 million. Paul was also clear that if this is the route that Thompson takes, next season would be his last with the Cavaliers. In the short term, it would be a huge break for the Cavs that their already enormous luxury tax bill won't also include a max deal for Thompson. Long term, it casts his future with the team in doubt. Reportedly, Thompson is asking for, are you sitting down for this one? A five-year, $94 million deal, or... $18.2 million a year. Now, my sources told me that two months ago, Thompson's agent had agreed to a contract, five years, $15 million a year. But the next day, Thompson came back and said he wanted 17. Now it's gone up to 18.2. Now, next summer, the salary cap is expected to jump by as much as $20 million, and Thompson thinks he's in a perfect position to capitalize on the demand that will be created by that extra money in the cap. But if he's really worth that much, then why hasn't he brought an offer like it to the Cavs' table? See, he's a restricted free agent. So Thompson right now could bring, sign an offer sheet with any team, bring it to the Cavaliers' doorstep, and the Cavaliers would have to match it. So if he's worth $18 million a year, why hasn't a team signed him to a contract like that so that he could take it back to the Cavaliers. That would be the perfect scenario. Because here's an example. Let's just say, because Toronto, the Raptors, are the team that is most notably bandied about when it comes to Thompson services, because Thompson comes from Toronto. Now, the Raptors could sign him to 
a deal like this, $18 million a year. And what that would do is, that would force the Cavaliers to either accept it or decline it. If they accept, if they accept it, then the Raptors have put the Cavaliers in a salary tax situation that is unheard of as far as the NBA is concerned, ever. Or the Cavaliers would just choose not to accept that contract and lose Thompson to the Raptors for nothing. See, my point is, if Toronto's going to sign him to a contract for $18 million next year, do it this year. Why not? They would get him for that extra year. But then you've also got to remember that the reason that that isn't happening is because nobody's offering that kind of a deal. They know what kind of player Tristan Thompson is. Yes, he's extremely valuable to the Cavaliers. Don't get me wrong. I believe that. I understand it. He's extremely valuable to the Cleveland Cavaliers. But the Cavaliers play a different style of game from other teams in the NBA. And that different style allows Thompson to roam free underneath the basket. And that contributes mightily to the fact that he can grab offensive rebounds at the rate that he does. But if he becomes the primary rebounder on a team, then his rebounding strength is going to go down. Because you've got LeBron James, who picks up the small forward. You've got Kevin Love, who is most notably all the time guarded by the big forward. You've got Timothy Mozgov. But if you put Thompson down low instead of Mozgov, and you've still got James and Love standing out at the three-point arc, that loosens things up in the middle, and they're concentrating on James and Love, and they're leaving things go underneath for Tristan Thompson. See where I'm going with this? That's the problem. But if he goes to Toronto, or a team like the Lakers, or a team like the Knicks, Atlanta would be the perfect fit for him, but they're not going to sign him to such an outlandish deal either. He suddenly becomes the primary rebounder on that team. And if you're going to sign a guy to an $18 million contract, do you realize that $18 million is more than LaMarcus Aldridge is making with the San Antonio Spurs? A five-year, $94 million deal is more than what LaMarcus Aldridge will make with the San Antonio Spurs. Unbelievable. Thompson does not match up with Aldridge. But let's say Thompson does decide to sign the qualifying offer for just under $7 million. Well, that means that the Cavaliers' options are limited. They can't trade him without his consent because the collective bargaining agreement gives players who sign the qualifying offer veto power over trades. And this is a no-win scenario for the Cavaliers. If Thompson signs the qualifying offer, he spends the year unhappy. If he signs a long-term deal for less than the $18 million that he wants, he's going to spend the next five years unhappy. So what do the Cavaliers do? They sign him to the short-term deal, they can't trade him. They sign him to the long-term deal, they've got an unhappy player. My suggestion is just don't sign him. Let him sit. Let him come to you. He's going to be unhappy. They can't trade him now anyway because he technically is a restricted free agent. They would have to sign him, then trade him. So it's a dilemma for the Cavaliers. It's a dilemma for Tristan Thompson. But still, nobody has come knocking at Thompson's door yet trying to sign him to a contract. When that happens, then the Cavaliers will have a decision to make. In other basketball... Nike failed to match the 13-year, $200 million offer Adidas extended to James Harden, meaning 
The Houston Rockets guard will begin wearing Adidas shoes on October 1st, reports ESPN's Darren Rovell. Adidas spokesman Michael Ehrlich confirmed the deal. Adidas offered Harden the deal at the beginning of the month, giving Nike until the end of this week to match the deal or lose their longtime client. Harden's contract with Nike had recently expired. The contract outmatches the five-year, $80 million contract extension Harden signed with the Rockets in 2012. You're listening to the Ultimate Sports Talk Show on UltimateSportsTalk.com. I'm Dave Mitchell. Syracuse coach Jim Beheim still believes Carmelo Anthony should have chosen the Chicago Bulls over the New York Knicks, reports the New York Post. Anthony, an unrestricted free agent in 2014, re-signed with the Knicks after joining the team via a trade in 2011. That same summer, Beheim said Anthony should have signed with the Bulls, one of Anthony's reported suitors. Beheim coached Anthony for one year at Syracuse, a season resulting in Beheim's only national championship. Anthony's Nick teams have missed the playoffs in each of the last two seasons and haven't made it beyond the second round in five years. Beheim does not find the Knicks championship chances better this upcoming season, as do most basketball experts. Well, Michael Jordan just wasn't one of the greatest basketball players to ever play in the NBA, according to most everyone with an interest in a sport. He was also probably the biggest cultural phenomenon. Jordan changed everything about what it meant to be a superstar athlete. He was really the first to have a shoe named after him, which in time would become one of the strongest brands on earth and a status symbol in its own right. He's been merchandised in every imaginable way, appeared in movies, had his own cartoon show alongside Bo Jackson and Wayne Gretzky, and was on a poster in millions of kids' rooms for over a decade. So you'd imagine that he's made... More than a lot of money outside the $90.24 million, that's according to sources, that he made in contract money from his player's salary. But just how much he's made an endorsement deal since he retired, well, that will probably blow your mind. Since his 2003 retirement, Nike has paid Jordan $480 million between 2000 and 2012. And he has also received $18 million from Gatorade, $14 million each from Haynes and Upper Deck, and $10.6 million from fragrance company XEL. Now that comes out to over $536 million over 12 years, or on an average, $44.7 million annually. That's over twice what LeBron James made last year as a max free agent, and oh, by the way, Jordan is a majority owner in the Charlotte Hornets, which were valued at $725 million last year by Forbes. So Jordan, well, he made the Forbes list of billionaires earlier this year, and they reported he earned about $90 million last year alone. Yesterday, the NBA schedule for the upcoming season was announced by the league, and it reduced the numbers of back-to-back games and four games in five days that the NBA teams play. That was high on Commissioner Adam Silver's agenda, and he managed to alleviate some of that pressure without extending the season by a week or the start or a week at the end. 
Silver made a dent in those numbers in an effort to reduce the fatigue, wear and tear, and including injuries and increase the level of competition. See, the back-to-back games have now been reduced on the schedule by 17.8% per team. And for the 2015-16 season, it's down from 19.3% last year, and no team has more than 20 back-to-backs this year. Long-distance back-to-backs have been trimmed from 111 last season to 85 this season. Back-to-backs that cross the time zones have also been cut from 194 last season to 160 this year. Four games in five days have been reduced from nine per team down to 2.3 per team. The NBA reduced the number of miles traveled per team by 2%. And CBS Sports' Zach Harper goes over the most notable games for the upcoming campaign. And we've got a bunch of games we're looking forward to, so let's look at the top notable games for next season. We'll start off with the ring ceremony in the Bay Area. The Golden State Warriors get their rings. We get to see the banner unveiled. We get to hear the Roracle crowd go crazy. It's going to be a fun one, and teams that raise the banner usually have a pretty good night. They've won 11 out of the last 15 games, so they get to start off their defending championship season in some style. That'll be fun. We've got a couple of return stories. DeAndre Jordan returning to the Dallas Mavericks of sorts. He never really left the Clippers, but he kind of agreed to go to the Mavericks, and you can expect the Dallas crowd to really give him uh, just an earful of booze whenever he gets the ball, whenever he's doing anything on the floor. We have a little bit more of a touching story with LaMarcus Aldridge going back to Portland when the Spurs visit the Portland Trailblazers. That's going to be a fun one. We're going to see a nice video tribute. The crowd's going to be crazy for LaMarcus in a good way that will really make him feel welcome and make him feel like his time, his nine years in Portland were appreciated. We're also going to get the two best big men in the league, DeMarcus Cousins and Anthony Davis. They have really gone at it last season in the last few years. Davis is 6-5 and five against Cousins over his career, but it's been really, really good matchups, and we've had Cousins post 39-20. and 20. He had a triple-double against Davis last year, but Davis ended up going 3-1 against him. All those matchups will be good, and then we've got some rivalries in the Western Conference, whether it's the Clippers going against the Rockets like we saw in the second round, Clippers going against the Spurs like we saw in the first round. We've got the Rockets going at the Warriors trying to prove that maybe the Warriors aren't that good as James Harden once proclaimed. The Clippers and Warriors is always a good matchup. And then at some point, we're going to have to say goodbye to Kobe Bryant. We only have one more game, hopefully, in which Kobe Bryant and LeBron James get to face off against each other. If we're lucky, we'll get two this season, but we're going to at least have one most likely. And that'll be a big, big rivalry coming to an end with Kobe fans and LeBron fans getting to battle one more time. Well, it should be a very interesting upcoming NBA season. And, of course, the Cavaliers will probably be one of the favorites to win the NBA championship. If you looked at it just a week after the series ended between the Cavs and the Warriors, just about a month or so ago, the Cavaliers were already the favorite in Las Vegas to win the championship just a year from now. Baseball, 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 and don't look now, but who's the hottest team in Major League Baseball? It's the Toronto Blue Jays. The Blue Jays have won 10 in a row, and thanks to the Cleveland Indians, who are probably the second hottest Major League Baseball team right now. The Toronto Blue Jays have skipped over the New York Yankees for first place in the American League Eastern Division. But we'll take a look at the division leaders and the wild card standings coming up here in just a few minutes. But the Cleveland Indians, can you believe it? Ever since last week when they traded away Nick Swisher and Michael Bourne, they have been one of the hottest teams in Major League Baseball. They took two out of three against 
the Minnesota Twins over the weekend, and they've won two straight from the New York Yankees, who have fallen upon hard times. So the Indians are just five and a half games out of that magical wild card spot, and we've got over a month and a half of baseball left to go in the season. Well, nearing the non-waiver trade deadline, Seattle Mariner fans thought Hisashi Iwakuma might be history, a trade chip with a soon-to-expire contract that could have been used to acquire prospects. But the Mariners held on to the 34-year-old, and he made history yesterday. They were rewarded with the fifth no-hitter in Seattle franchise history and the third ever by a Japanese pitcher. Who was the other pitchers to throw a no-hitter? Well, it was just one. Hideo Nomo, he threw two. And that was in a 3 nothing victory over the Orioles yesterday at Safeco Field. The ninth started with an outstanding play by third baseman Kelly Seeger. 2-2 two, two pitch. Seeger taking a look. Might have room. Staying with it. Oh, it's the catch. catch. One down here in the ninth. That is not an easy play to make. The ball is slicing away from him. He knows that little short fence. It's right there, worried about his knees. And watch him react. Last minute, looking over his shoulder, reaches back to make the catch. What a play by Kyle Seeger. 0-2 to Manny. Ground ball, Seeger. Takes his time. Two outs here tonight. First pitch. Jackson. Got a read. It was a moment that hardly could have been imaginable early in the season when Iwakuma struggled in his first three starts before being placed on the disabled list. Iwakuma issued two walks in the fourth, but he retired 14 of the final 15 hitters that he faced. There's a big reported baseball deal going on today. The San Francisco Giants and Philadelphia Phillies have progressed in trade talks for second baseman Chase Utley and have started discussing specific prospects. That's according to John Morosi of Fox Sports. Utley cleared waivers on Tuesday night and can now be traded to any team before the August 31st waiver trade deadline if he waives his no-trade clause. Giants second baseman Joe Panic is on the disabled list with a back injury and has not resumed baseball activities. Kelby Tomlinson was recalled from AAA and is playing second for the Giants right now. Utley, 36 years old, was activated from the 15-day DL last week after missing 37 games due to a right ankle inflammation. In his return, Utley is 5 for 13. He has three doubles, three RBIs, three runs scored in four games. And on the season, he's batting 190 with four homers, 28 RBIs, and a 557 OPS over 69 games. Utley... Now in his 12th season with Philadelphia, is expected to earn $15 million this year and also has a $15 million club option for 2016. That includes a $2 million buyout. Well, taking a look around Major League Baseball and the standings so far, in the National League, the New York Mets lead the East, the St. Louis Cardinals lead the Central, and the Dodgers lead the West. The wildcard teams in the National League so far are Pittsburgh and Chicago. The Cubs. Believe it or not. The Cubs. Can you believe it? The Cubs. 
The Cubs are actually in the playoffs if the season ended today. Unbelievable. Joe Madden and Theo Epstein, what a job they've done with the Cubs. And the Central Division in the National League, look at that. You've got St. Louis with the best record in baseball, 73-40. and 40. You've got the Cubs with the second, or I should say the Pirates, with the second best record in baseball, 65-46. and 46. And you've got the Cubs with the third best record at 64-48 and 48 in the National League. Now here's a look at the wild card standings. Pittsburgh leads it by a game and a half, then come the Cubs. Then San Francisco is four and a half games out. The Washington Nationals are six and a half games out. Arizona, eight and a half games out. And then comes San Diego at 11 and a half games out. And if you even care about the Cincinnati Reds, well, they're 50 and 62, and they are 14 games out of the wild card standings so far. Now over in the American League, the three divisional winners are Toronto, Kansas City, and Houston. Is there any bigger story in baseball this year other than the Chicago Cubs and the Houston Astros? Kansas City's got the best record in the American League at 68 and 45. Then comes Toronto at 64 and 52. As I said, they've won 11 in a row now, but they've won 10 of their last 10. And then comes Houston at 62 and 53. Now the two wild card teams right now in baseball, the New York Yankees, they're the top wild card team and the L.A. Angels. The Yankees are two and a half games up. The Angels are the last wild card team. They're a game and a half ahead of Tampa Bay. Now comes the rest of the story. Baltimore and Minnesota each have 57 and 56 records. They're two games out. Texas, three and a half games out. Detroit and Chicago, the White Sox, each four and a half games out. And then come the Indians, five and a half games out. But the Indians, as I said, have won four in a row. They're 53 and 59. But the problem with the Indians is they've got six teams to vault over in order to get into that wild card position. But the Indians are playing their best baseball right now, and that's what they have to do in order to get back into the wild card situation. Now here's some standings and key matchups this weekend. The Yankees are playing at Toronto. Now, depending upon what happens tonight in the Indians-Yankees game, Toronto Blue Jays could be tied with the Yankees, or they could be a full two games ahead of the Yankees. Then come the Cubs at White Sox. That's going on this weekend. The Pirates are playing at the Mets. That's a battle of two good teams there. And the Angels will be at the Royals. So a lot of great baseball coming up over the next month and a half in the MLB. Well, the PGA Golf Championship is going on this weekend, and Tiger Woods came into it hoping to carry over some positive momentum from a top 25 performance at the Quicken Loans National two weeks ago. Things seemed to be trending in the right direction for Woods, and there was some cautious optimism that he might find a way to contend this week. Instead, he shot an opening around 75 and finds himself in a position he has become all too familiar with heading into Friday at a major Woods is way out of contention at three over and will have a good bit of work to do on Friday if he's to see the weekend at Whistling Straits. That being said, here's a look at what's happening in the 2015 PGA Championship. Right now, Dustin Johnson is on top at six below par, and he's finished up his round. David Lingmurth is coming in second place, but Lingmurth has only played 12 holes so far, and he's at five under. Then comes... Jason Day, Harris English, Russell Henley, J.B. Holmes, Matt Jones, Matt Kuchar, 
and Danny Lee, all at four under par. At three under par in the PGA Championship so far, it is Thomas Bjorn, James Morrison, Justin Rose, and Brendan Steele. Finally tonight, Wisconsin's Bo Ryan announced in June that he planned to retire after the season. Well, now he's decided maybe he's not so sure. Gary Parrish reports. Great news for Wisconsin fans. Sounds like Bo Ryan will not, I repeat, will not be retiring after this season after all. If you remember, the 67-year-old coach announced in June that he planned to coach one more year and then call it a career. But on Wednesday at a charity golf tournament in Wisconsin, Ryan said it's not necessarily his plan anymore, and he explicitly said he's leaving the door open to coaching four or maybe even five more years. Bottom line, he just doesn't know right now, which means he's following in Brett Farr's footsteps that folks in Wisconsin remember so well. On that note, it was funny to hear Bo Ryan allude to as much. According to PostCrescent.com, he said, quote, I wouldn't be the first guy in the country that ever thought about retirement and then changed their mind. I'm not doing anything revolutionary here. Indeed, Bo, you are not. Ryan has been Wisconsin's head coach since the 2001 season. The 67-year-old has won four Big Ten regular season titles, three Big Ten tournament championships, and he never finished worse than fourth in the league. And he's made the final four each of the past two seasons. And that's going to do it. That's a wrap on tonight's Ultimate Sports Talk Show. Glad you joined us here this evening. I'm going to kick back and watch some Cleveland Browns football and see if Connor Shaw can put a handle on the Browns' starting quarterback job. Doubtful, but hey, I can hope for just about anything. And don't forget, once again, coming up on August 28th, we'll start our second consecutive year of bringing you high school football coverage. August 28th, it's a Friday night. We begin at 6 o'clock with Golden Bear Rewind, 6.30 the pregame show, and then at 7 o'clock the kickoff between Tusky Valley and the Wayndale Golden Bears. Pat Mitchell and I will bring you all the play-by-play action beginning at 7 o'clock on August 28th. That's going to do it for us here this evening. Our thanks to Greg Mitchell for producing tonight's show, but most of all, our thanks to you for listening. Don't forget the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show coming up this Monday night at 9 o'clock. Mark Donahue and I will talk about the Cleveland Indians and the Cincinnati Reds. And our next show comes up next Thursday night at 7 o'clock. We're going to stay in this 7 o'clock time slot for you here at Ultimate Sports Talk. That's going to do it. I'm Dave Mitchell. Until next week, have a good week, everybody. Everybody.